Hello and welcome to a podcast episode of Nonprofit Vision with Gregory Nielsen. My name is Gregory Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, NTC. NTC works with nonprofit leaders and organizations to help them translate their vision into reality. Our podcast features conversations with influential nonprofit leaders from around the country talking about their leadership journey and also critical challenges and components of running and managing their organizations. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by my friend, the Executive Director of Friend for Life Cancer Support Network, Judy Casey Houlette. Good morning, good Julie. It's good to be here, Greg. It's good to see you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Sure. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to have a conversation around your background. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the organization, what you mm -hmm. have going on here, um, and then your leadership journey. So right. if we could begin, where are you from? Where did you? Uh, right here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, okay. Born and raised here. Um, I've lived other places, but this is home. This is home. And did you leave for college or did you go to school Left here? for college, went to Vanderbilt for undergrad, got my major, majored in art history of all things and minored in English. So that prepared me for not a whole lot, but <laughs> I'm still grateful for that education. That's one of the interesting things I found about nonprofit leaders is just the varied backgrounds, the different majors yeah. that people come from. You know, when you think of a doctor, you think of lawyers, you think of architects, there are specific academic mm -hmm. patterns that lead there. One of the things I love the most about the nonprofit sector is just the different majors and the different professional exactly. and life experiences that people yes, have had. Indeed. <laughs> so when you so, graduated with your art history degree, what? How, how, how did you start? Well, I went into food service. <laughs> uh, there were two things I loved and I loved, uh, loved art history. I also loved to write, but I also loved to cook. And I had done some catering of sorts out of my, my parents' home. And um, what I did was put in a uh, job application to the local art museums, J.B. Speed Art Museum at the time. And they saw that I had some food experience. So they <laughs> they were not hiring, but the cafe was. So okay. I started as a prep cook and ended up becoming the, the main cook after just a couple of months. I don't know how you feel, but I think that those varied experiences from nonprofit leaders make for a richer, fuller Definitely. nonprofit sector is that there's there's a diversity of past experiences that I think you bring Absolutely. to your role. Yeah. And that's one of the things in thinking about preparing for today's talk is, is I've done a wide variety of things, but have learned from every single experience, uh, most of which have been very positive and mm -hmm. even the negative the negative ones were uh, educational in some way. All of it shapes your leadership exactly. profile. It becomes part of that package of who you are. Mm -hmm. um, so exactly. what would you say you took from that first experience? The first experience, uh, absolutely. I felt like I was thrown into the deep end of the pool, but I loved it. I worked with, it was a uh, woman-owned business. There were three women. One of them was moving to live in Canada. And so I stepped in. They were extremely supportive. Um, it was a very creative atmosphere because they would change the menu every month, every month, and then they would try and uh, match the theme to whatever the, the uh, new uh, art exhibit was. Uh, but a big part of that was making the plates as beautiful as possible. So in addition to cooking delicious food, it was really fun to design the appearance of the plates. So it fed some of those needs for me. And I was there a couple of years. Um, 
did catering as well as uh, just the, it was a lunch menu. So. I bet the two things that I heard from you that, that jumped out at me just now were the deep end of the pool being thrown into the deep <laughs> yes. end of the pool and creativity. Yes. And those are really two themes that I hear recurring with yes. nonprofit leaders certainly matches my experience yeah. as well is that especially with our nonprofit sector and nonprofit organizations, there are so many times where there isn't a playbook or a manual yes. or a technical script. You do have to jump into the deep end of the pool. That's true. That's true. I don't know if you so, found that as well. Absolutely. But. And, I, and, I, and uh, I know we had a conversation with a colleague like recently who was saying that it would be very hard for her to do a nine to five job working for someone else. And I feel the same way. I mean, it's just I, I realize in the jobs that I've had, the ones that I love the most were ones that I, where I had freedom and, and was able to do my own thing where, you know, I think of my position now it's not a nine to five sometimes it's a it's an eight to four and other times it's a full week without much of a breather so it's that having that freedom freedom to do what's necessary and what's needed at the, at the particular time that's right and I think that I hear that a lot from nonprofit leaders also is that willingness and yeah. it's a flexibility too mm-hmm. to put all of yourself into the mission, right. whether that be for a forty-hour week or occasionally a whole lot more, <laughs> exactly. than, a lot more than that. Right. Exactly. So tell us, how did you get into not? How did you first make the move into the nonprofit sector? Was it straight through the museum? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> it was uh, it, it was kind of ish by accident. Um, so. I was very happy in my job, but I, I wanted to branch out. I, I was thinking, I love the state of Maine. I thought, I'm just going to go. I'm going to live on my own, find something to do, live in a part of the country that I love. And then I met um, I met somebody. <laughs> I met Forrest Hewlett, who became my, my husband. Um, we were engaged and, and then married within just a few months. We, mm-hmm. And his first job, he had his Ph.D. in English. Uh, was teaching at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma, so far from the East Coast and beautiful wow. ocean and all. Um, it would be hard to get a whole lot more different from Maine to yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much was a 180. So, but but it was okay. It was an interesting year. I worked in food service there, uh-huh. did more catering uh, there again for a business. But it was it was there again. The hours were all over the place. Um, but both of us wanted to come back closer to home, uh-huh. and so we were able to do that. The following year, he taught at Ball State University. We had our daughter, Alex, Alexandra, while we lived there. Um, I did a little bit of everything. I did some catering um, and eventually ended up going back to to grad school or going to grad school and had several areas that I was interested in, but chose um, counseling psychology and actually did a major in that and gerontology and did an internship how did you eventually decide on that? So you had been in food service, you had done a whole bunch yeah. of different things. How did you make that decision to go the counseling route, right. which is very different? Exactly. Well, in some ways, <laughs> um, it, but yes, um, I think everything involves psychology in some ways. Um, but my dad had been a psychiatrist okay. here in Louisville, and uh, he developed Alzheimer's disease. So that whole experience was life-changing for my whole family, of course. Um, but it, 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 you know, then I re- kind of went back to my roots of how I was yeah. raised and just to be interested in the human psyche and, and all that goes on. And, and there was a, also a, an assistantship in the gerontology program. And that was interesting to me as well. And it just felt like a good fit. Once I was in there, it's like, 
I'm home kind of feeling in both programs. And and then I was in, in the middle of the program and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I was 37. Uh, our daughter was 10. It was, even though there's a lot of breast cancer that runs in my family, it no one had had it. Uh, at that early of an age and everyone had survived, almost everyone had survived. So there was that piece of it, but it's like, oh, this is different. Right. And I was, I was terrified. And, um, but there again, the, the programs that I was in were very supportive. And then I ended up taking an extra year, um, took a doctoral course uh, in psychosocial oncology that actually involved uh, working with people who'd re been recently diagnosed. And I just, I thought, as scary and lonely as this is and not having really any place to reach out. Right. Um, probably the, I guess the seminal moment was I was, it was like the wee hours of the morning. I couldn't sleep. And I went through all the papers I'd been given and found this 800 number 24 seven. There's somebody on call to talk to, you know, we know it's a rough time. And I called the number and it had been disconnected. Ooh. So that I thought, you know, if I get through this, this is something I would like to change, you know, would like there to be a voice on the other end of the phone. So it had, it had always been, the counseling had always been a passion yeah. for you, yeah, but way, it just yeah. transformed into mm -hmm. a much deeper personal right. experience. It did. I mean, I think back, I was always interested in, in psychology, just, yes. you know, and I was the person a lot of times that people would come to talk to, but it didn't really, you know, label it psychology. Right. right. Um, but I finished the program. Uh, my husband, daughter, and I moved back to Louisville because um, we'd wanted to move to Louisville for some time. Mm -hmm. And um, the one downside of the degree that I got is that at least at that time, there was not licensure, uh, or at least my the degree I had was not reimbursable through insurance. Oh, okay. So I might be highly qualified for a position, but they weren't going to hire me because my particular degree was not paid for by insurance. So I uh, ended up actually had some part-time jobs and then started volunteering with Friend for Life. And uh, I guess the rest is history. But uh, the first director, Joan Steiner, um, had been with the organization 10, 12 years and had been wanting to retire. And so she spoke with so me. Tell us the history. Friend for Life started when? Yeah, it's Friend for Life Cancer Support Network. Okay. Uh, it was founded here in Louisville in 1988 by two gentlemen, um, uh, Phil Bramblett and Chuck Sandman. And both of them had experienced different kinds of cancer. and But they had both talked with their oncology nurse. Is There should be some sort of program where you can just talk to somebody who's been through cancer. Who so they had a similar like. experience to what you, what exactly. you went through in terms yeah. of trying, looking for resources, looking for some support and yes. not there being a void there. Exactly. Yeah. And I know there may have been resources. It was just, you're not always aware of what's, what's available. And, but there really, there was not. And still it, we are the only friend for life is the only source of one-on-one -on -one matched peer support for any type of cancer in our region and in our state. It's, and it's, and it's hard to describe if you've not had cancer, it's when you're diagnosed, you suddenly feel like you're on a different planet or like on the other side of a wall where yes. the other side is normal life <laughs> than what everybody else is living. And uh, it just is, it's just life changing. And so to be able to talk to somebody who gets that there's like this instant bond and then you feel less alone. So, um, so that's what those 
you know, both Phil and Chuck recognized and the, their oncology nurse introduced them. They did some research, got an advisory board together. And uh, within a year, we had 501c3 and started on the road. So. I love that because yeah. I think, especially as you go around the country, you talk to different folks and you see the number of times organizations yeah. have stepped up in the way Friend yeah. for Life did, where they've seen a gap in the community. They've mm-hmm. seen a exactly. way um, to make an impact in people's lives, something that may not exist mm-hmm. right then. And the nonprofit organization steps right into that mm-hmm. void yes. to make our communities a better place. Um, yes. and, and I love hearing that. that Friend for Life can be that network, yes. that support network for others. Yeah. So you started as a volunteer then. I did, yeah. It was that, uh, started in 1999 when we moved back to Louisville. And um, and then it was the following November of 2000 when, when I agreed to take on the position. And it, at that time, it was 20 hours a week. So not a huge uh, <laughs> big paycheck. difference now, yeah, right? exactly. Uh, but yeah, we have grown. Uh, we had less than a hundred volunteers. Now we have close to four hundred. Um, our staff. We now have two. Uh, each of us thirty hours a week, you know, more or less. Um, and then we have have had a string and, and have been so fortunate in getting graduate assistance um, from local colleges and universities. So that's so it's great. 19, it's 99. Is that when 1999, 1999 when I you yeah. had been in food service, you had gone back and gotten your master's <laughs> right. and now you have this executive director position right. right in front of you. What were you thinking when you took the position? What was going through your head? Uh, at that again, moment? deep end of the pool. Uh, <laughs> I had, had, had had my own catering business in Muncie. Okay. So I had some experience in, um, you know, being boss, I guess. Although it's funny because I, in preparing for this again, I kept thinking, I feel like an accidental leader. That was never my intention. It's just I'm persnickety enough where I don't want to work for somebody else for, for the most part. I just really enjoy that. Did you, freedom. Did you have yeah. a lot of other nonprofit experience? Had you been a board member or volunteer? I remember uh-huh. I had a similar, um, similar experience to you in that I, I became an executive director um, at a young age and had not served in the nonprofit sector yeah. at all. So I, I remember at the beginning just learning the lingo and learning the yes. the terminology and the way that nonprofits yeah. are unique. Did you have that experience? Yes. I mean, I'm trying to think because I was on a na- board of a neighborhood association, um, had been like newsletter editor for another organization, but not in any kind of really intense involvement until this experience. Okay. Um, and so it First, it felt mostly like kind of like I'm I'm leading it. I'm doing a small business or something. It right. felt more like that. Right. But right. Um, but it would yeah, like you said, the terminology is different. Getting I think one of the greatest challenges was getting to know the volunteers because here Joan, my predecessor, had known them for years. Yes. And here I am, kind of this person out of the blue, and <laughs> how to how to create those relationships and, and then establish credibility. Exactly. I mean, you're, you yeah. know, as a nonprofit executive, you're the face and the voice of the right. organization. You're yeah. also the one interfacing with donors and and oh, grant yeah. making foundations oh, yeah. and corporate sponsors. Um, just establishing that credibility yeah. is takes a lot of self confidence mm-hmm. and uh, takes time. You know, really, I've, it's it's been built over years and. Um, I really have done it more just, or it's, I guess, more organically and truly finding, being interested in people and, and in what they want to bring to the organization. It's been extremely rewarding. I learned so much from Joan, from our board members, past and present, um, from our volunteers. It's just, it, 
it's like to me life is a continual learning experience and definitely that's true for friend for life and i hear that a lot from nonprofit leaders i think that intellectual curiosity that that innate desire to keep learning Mm -hmm. really benefits yes nonprofit leaders because none of us nobody has all of the answers uh, particularly when you're first starting out oh exactly Um, yeah i mean that's in in some ways the scariest Mm -hmm. so how were those initial couple of months oh wow that's a memory. <laughs> um, Joan was always there, uh, you know, to call and talk with. Um, I was really fortunate that my office made of sorts. Uh, Friend for Life, you know, started out in a room in a church basement, basically. <laughs> um, and not long after the initiation of the organization, the church needed its room back. And mm-hmm. so uh, the board at that time reached out to area hospitals and said, would you be willing to just create uh, just enough room for a desk and a, at that time a typewriter mm-hmm. <laughs> and a computer um, and just and our staff and and our volunteers will help you in, in whatever way. Well, Baptist at that time, Baptist Hospital East, now Baptist Health Louisville stepped up and said, sure. And so that was, I've forgotten, like 95 maybe. And, um, and so they, when they opened their so originally we were on the floor, like the oncology floor of the hospital. So it was actually a little bit earlier than 95. When in 95, they opened their first cancer resource center, they included Friend for Life in that space. Mm-hmm. And they had a staff person who was an oncology nurse, Sister Barbara Nicholas. And so she and I, I learned so much from her, continued to learn from yes. her. Um, so she had been an oncology nurse Um for, for years. And uh, just so I've learned from individuals um, from the board. I, w- I know I must have been terribly nervous before every board meeting. Um, but it, that's OK. It I really think most people just, are still guess, nervous before most board I, I, I'm meetings. Not now for some reason, but um, but it's it's just truly been a gradual learning experience. There have been rough times. And I think you mentioned fundraising and donor cultivation, I learned to write a grant with Sister Barbara's help. Um, And it was just hands-on. There were no, there's no coursework or anything, but used my experience doing research in graduate school, that really helped in the grant writing. It's amazing the different things you can draw on um, in the the course of leading your organization. Now, the interesting thing is you also took over for the founder. Of the organization? Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, actually, both founders uh, passed away within okay. just a few years. The, Phil Bramblett within a year of the real start of the organization, and then Chuck Sandman just a few years later. So it's been carried on now for now 30 years, you know. And uh, what's great is that we're still in touch with their families, um, and they've been really supportive and have come to our events. And That's such an interesting dynamic throughout so nonprofit organizations yeah. of the relationship between the founder, the visionary of the organization, yeah. and the individuals who are leading it today. Exactly. Because there's, there's that natural life cycle with yeah. most organizations, and I love seeing organizations that are able to maintain that continuous and keep mm-hmm. um, the passion and the vision of the founder exactly. alive, even as the organization needs to evolve and change right. over time. Exactly. And that's one thing I'm so grateful for and thrilled by is that our mission stays the same. We have yes. not changed the mission at all and have grown exponentially on that mission that was, you know, very much a grassroots effort by these two gentlemen. And and and, and I feel like 
our, our organization owes them a debt of, you know, right. we appreciate them, the fact that they got this together, even though they were, at least one of them is still in treatment. Um, so that's, that's Tell a big us deal. more about the mission of the organization, because I love it. It's, it's, it's power is almost in its simplicity mm-hmm. and directness. That's, yeah, that's really that's what true. jumps out at me. Tell us a little bit. Well, more our mission that. statement is, is, is quite a long statement. And so I'm not <laughs> going to, but basically we exist. Uh, Friend for Life is an organization whose mission is to match, uh, persons who are recently diagnosed with cancer, and this also includes caregivers, with a trained survivor of a similar experience. So we are matching trained survivors with people who have been recently diagnosed. And when I say recently, there's there's no time limit. It doesn't matter. It can be the day you got the news. It can be months or even a year later. Whenever you feel that, that emotional impact of, oh my gosh, you know, this is life and death, right, you know, yes. that I'm dealing with. Even yes. if it's a very curable cancer, mm-hmm. you still are hit with that stigma or that that impact of the word cancer. Right. And um, and then going through all the treatments and people, as they say, cancer is no discriminator. True. It, you know, you can have mental illness, you can have other conditions, you could have just gone through a divorce, you could be a single mom, you can be anybody and get hit with this. And so we, you know. So how do you go about matching an individual with someone who is recently diagnosed? Right. What are, what type of criteria are you using? Um, yeah. how, how do you, how do you go about doing that? There's a lot of open listening. I think that's the most important thing is everybody's different when they call or submit a request online or come in the office. And uh, we'll get the basic nuggets of information, obviously name, as much contact information as they're willing to provide, um, what their diagnosis is, and sometimes they don't even know very specifically what it is. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Uh, we can match them with additional volunteers as that as they learn more. Mm-hmm. But mostly, it's about what's what are their greatest concerns, and sometimes it's just they're reeling from the diagnosis. Other times, it's like, what am I going to? How am I going to talk to my children about this? Other times it's, it, they need financial resources. That's not something what we do that we do, but we actually help connect with other organizations, either locally or regionally um, or nationally mm-hmm. for those additional needs. Um, actually, we try to do that through our volunteers. So once a, a connection's made and that volunteer learns that their match has other needs, we will educate the, the volunteer or the peer navigator say there are these resources in this way you've learned about these resources and then you can share within that relationship what so that really the I mean the engine of the organization once you've once you've had that conversation right. at the staff level the engine of the organization is really those volunteers Absolutely. that you're pairing with those who are recently diagnosed right. um, but that's got to be a tough ask to recruit volunteers how do you go about you would think how do, how do you go about recruiting <laughs> volunteers um you know i know there have been years when we've put an ad in the paper um but truly i'd say that they come to us a lot of times one of the things that give kudos to our, our assistant director nicole guffey wiseman because she initiated this follow-up so that if it's a year past when someone requested support we we have volunteers who come in the office and call those people and say, find out how they're doing. Sometimes they're still going through treatment and need an additional match or need to recontact. But if they're doing well, we ask, 
you know, would you be interested in becoming a volunteer yourself? So we've got this rotating process of, of and, and they know the benefit because they've been on the receiving Absolutely. end. Um, and we, we've learned things over the years, like that people really appreciate the volunteers staying in touch with them throughout the course of treatment. And, and a, a challenge is that people don't want to interrupt. They don't want to interrupt right. somebody's life. They don't right. want to seem like a, a pest or a nuisance. But what we hear from the people seeking support is they appreciate those calls that's, or that's powerful emails or whatever. So, so that's, we just keep learning. Of, so when you do gather volunteers, when individuals express interest, I assume there's a training yes. process or protocol. Mm-hmm. How, um, how specific is that training and how much of it is just wanting them to be an organic source of support for someone recently diagnosed? Well, we, we, since the beginning, uh, we've required that volunteers participate in training. It used to be a day and a half. It's now, we have a live training that's a full day, usually uh, on a Saturday in the spring. Uh, Next one is March 23rd of 2019. Um, And we have a wonderful facilitator, um, Barry Cecil, uh, who comes in and facilitates the training. And the importance of that is for each individual to understand what they're getting into, basically the, the values of the organization uh, to make sure that they are prepared within themselves to do this. Because when you providing support to somebody else who's going through what you went through, that was very traumatic, that can raise old feelings of concern and fear and all of that. So we want them to be prepared. We also want to prepare them for different scenarios that may or may not come up. Uh, The importance of being the person, being a, a, not a sponge, but like a ball of clay. I think our former trainer, Barbara Bouton used to call it so that you are their sounding board. You're not there to give advice. You're not there, especially not there to give medical advice but to be there as a resource for that person. So being there so that they can discover what's going to be right for them, what they need, um, help them through those decision-making processes. For those who do volunteer, what kind of time commitment um, do you require or do you ask of them? Um, Well, I'll go a little bit more through the process. So they complete a pretty lengthy application or detailed application. And in addition to the the live training, because we were not able to get as many people through in a cost-efficient way or time-efficient, we receive funding from the Kentucky Colonels to create a series of online training modules. So that time commitment goes from a full six-hour, eight-hour eight hour day to it's about a half an hour to go through the modules. Okay. There's a like a survey monkey quiz at the end to make sure that you've absorbed things um, and and then you have each individual interviews with our senior staff. One of the things you mentioned at the at the beginning when you were talking about the mission yeah. was uh, support and services for caregivers yes. as well. Tell us a little yes. bit more about that. I've, that has been a, a growing area because, um, and I, I remember being conscious of this when I was going through, I was concerned about my husband because mm-hmm. I knew he was soldiering, shouldering, supporting me, you know, caring for our daughter, keeping everything else going, his job and all of that, as well as I knew he was really worried sick as well. So, but he, and he did thankfully have a friend uh, that he was able to go to, but caregivers are under enormous amount of pressure too. Um, So we we're still growing the caregiver support program, but we were receiving more requests. A lot of times, 
the best way to contact and support caregiver will be online or like through email because yes. if they're they don't always feel comfortable talking in front of their loved ones. So it, it, it there again that support whoever's on the receiving end can be helpful just in alleviating pressures on on family and friends and caregivers. So this is difficult, emotionally challenging yeah. work for your for your staff. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you take care of them and ensure, I'm, I'm envisioning these conversations that they're having with individuals who are recently diagnosed, right. with volunteers who've had experiences, personal mm-hmm. experiences themselves. How do you keep your staff, um, energized is probably the wrong word, but um, just keep your staff emotionally healthy. Um, well, I am beyond grateful for Nicole, who is who is my staff right now, <laughs> um, uh, and then of course Amy, our graduate assistant, and both of them actually work at the local crisis hotline. So they come and come with this background of doing crisis counseling. Yes, and so I have that training. They have that training. That's been golden in terms of, and I've learned so much from, from them as well, from Nicole, especially about, you know, how do you deal with certain kinds of crises or when there's mental illness in addition to a cancer diagnosis, you know, how do you maintain control? And then a big piece of what we talk about is taking care of ourselves right? so that we can be, and that we're that resource for our volunteers when they experience a recurrence or a death in their own family or whatever. So that self-care aspect is yeah. so important, not only for organizations like yours, but for so many of the nonprofits that you oh, and goodness, I yes. work with. Um, I think our nonprofit leaders, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, do a really good job of caring for others. others yes. Um, and often ourselves, yeah. we, we kind of put ourselves on the bottom mm-hmm. of the pile. Have you yeah. found that as well? Oh, definitely. Yes, absolutely. I totally, totally agree. And, and yet I've, there's also, I'm also benefiting. I mean, I, I love what I do right. and I, and there's also a benefit in seeing somebody who is absolutely terrified and in tears. And then you talk to them a few months later and they're, they're wonderful. They're doing great. They've, mm-hmm. they've got it, whatever right. lies ahead. Right. So there are definitely definite rewards from it as well. But you're right. Taking care of yourself is. Are there avenues that you found to be effective in your career with yourself, with staff, um, you know, specific techniques or tactics that have worked well Humor's for you? Humor is a big one. I like that. And <laughs> Nicole and I have a similar quirky sense of humor. So there's that. I really appreciate um, Vule's website, uh-huh. Nonprofit AF, and um, colleagues, uh, fellow colleagues who are also nonprofit directors. Um, and then I've got wonderful family, friends. I love movies. I, now that my knee is fixed, um, I love to walk. <laughs> um, so, and, and, you know, do creative things at home as well. Right. So I think for every, um, for every leader, for every nonprofit professional, it's about connecting with what is your passion? Yeah. Who are you outside of mm-hmm. the office and making sure that that doesn't come to define your entire right. world. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a yeah. lot of it also speaks to the leader of the organization and the type of culture that you create among your staff and among right. your volunteers and humor being a part of yes. that. <laughs> but um you know, I, I think all of those are really important yeah. factors. Yeah. It consider. seems to work so far. So, 
Yeah. It, so how is, and now I, one of the other areas that I work a lot in is with boards and nonprofit mm-hmm. boards. Um, how have you assembled and built a team of board leaders to help you um, continue to push this organization forward? Um, I feel like I've, there again, learned from key board members and key board presidents who've helped me learn in that sense. Um, and they've actually been, especially more recently, very instrumental in taking on responsibilities and it's stepping up. In fact, our our most recent board chair, Bart Bashong, was has been very strong in helping to develop a board that has firm term limits and you know requests has thing we revised the board. Um, sorry, the the um, yeah, that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Our bylaws. The bylaws. Uh, that's it. Uh, revise the bylaws. That's okay. It's easy to forget to about the bylaws. Yeah, exactly. Some stuff. of us would love to forget, forget about the bylaws, bylaws sometimes. No. Yeah, we still have to, you know, remember what it was that we said. But yeah. um, but hold to those a lot better. Um, we have uh, just a really very engaged board. Our newest board uh, chair and uh assistant chair, which is a new position, um, or president-elect, I guess. Um, so we're getting together with each individual board member, mm-hmm. um, either for coffee or lunch, to talk about, you know, what, what first of all, what questions do they have, right. and how would they like to be involved? What are their strengths? What are their, what ways would they like to give um, right. to the organization? What talents and abilities? So just to get to, there again, it's that personal engagement yeah. with someone, yeah. uh, really really makes a difference. How do you, um, you know, one of the things that nonprofits struggle with from time to time is how to connect board members to the mission of the organization, Mm -hmm. how to really appropriately get them to understand the challenges, the emotional challenges, the um, mental challenges. Um, When you, when you're recruiting board members and working with board members, how do you find effective to connect them to the mission of Friend for Life? Good question. Um, they some of them have an existing connection of some sort where a family member was a longtime volunteer. We have a family heritage in the Jacker family where mm-hmm. where uh, the dad uh, Al Jacker was an early uh, board member and volunteer, and that has continued on now through the second of his sons. Um, we have an, another one. Our previous uh, president, Barbara Shang, his. Um, mom was a part of the organization. So for a lot of them, there's that emotional connection already for mm-hmm. others who are more like presences in the committee, in, in the community. Um, we, there are various ways we created a video that I think really gets to the heart of what we do, but we also have a volunteer come in and speak with the board, board at least once a year about their experiences. Plus we have board membership for, that's filled by one to two uh, volunteers, Wonderful. active volunteers. So they share that experience. Uh, also, at the at the beginning of every board meeting, we have what we call a warm fuzzy, and, and it's, <laughs> I like that. I've like, heard mission moment, yeah, which sounds yeah. a little more formal. Yes. I like warm fuzzy. Warm fuzzy, <laughs> and, it's, and it's not always. I mean, most ninety nine percent of the time, it is some really positive feedback, but sometimes it incorporates information about how many challenges somebody's going through and and that there aren't any simple answers, but at least there's gratitude for that connection. I think that's such a key point that sometimes some of the challenges that that 
organizations have and some of the people that yeah. we're all serving have is there there might not be an easy yeah. answer. And I think an organization like yours yeah. really epitomizes that mm-hmm. in that sometimes yeah. there are no easy answers. Right. There might not even be any good answers, but there are yes. better ones yeah. than, than others. And at least you're standing, you're there for that person exactly. while they're going through the thing they're going through. Now, approximately how many people do you serve each year? Uh, right now, it's right around 1,500, 1,600. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And wow. and that's another way that we have grown. We used to be very Louisville-focused and, you know, Louisville, Southern mm-hmm. Indiana, uh, thanks to people having unlimited minutes on their cell phones <laughs> and uh, email and Skype and all that. We serve pretty much anyone anywhere. Uh, so lots of international, uh, lots of lots of national calls. Uh, and that comes, again, from collaboration with other organizations across the country that provide, basically have a similar mission. So okay. they have trained volunteers who are survivors and caregivers that match. So if any organization doesn't have a particularly close match for a support seeker, we reach out in an email to all the other organizations and usually within definitely within 24 hours, we hear back. So we can tell that caller, we don't currently have a match for you, but you can contact this organization or we'll contact them for you, whatever's going to be easiest for you. So So how do most folks hear about you? So if someone were to get recently diagnosed, um, aside from your website and and Mm -hmm. other traditional you know, ways of looking right. you up. How do how do people learn about the organization? Uh, all different ways. Um, so there are physicians who refer directly to us. Uh, all our materials are in all the local uh, area hospitals that provide cancer care. Um, there again, we have board represent representation from all the area hospitals. So um, it's nice to get yes people who are normally competitive competitors uh they're on you know uh, everyone can working together everyone can get behind exactly um so some and nurse navigators are wonderful social workers Mm -hmm. um and then just word of mouth i mean we'll get calls from we got a call from some rural area in minnesota recently who had heard about us somehow um but a lot of that connection with these other organizations has brought us in, in you know increased awareness all over the place, all over the country. That's wonderful. Well, Judy, before we wrap up today, I want to make sure that our listeners have the opportunity to know how to reach out to you. Um, So if, if they might be interested in volunteering or if we have anyone who's listening who may have a recent diagnosis or Mm -hmm. know someone who has recently been diagnosed, give us a little bit of information about how people could connect to you directly. Sure. Well, our phone number is 502-893-0643. Website is friend, the num- and it's single friend, <laughs> not plural, uh, the number four life.org. Um, and then we're on Facebook. And, and make sure you put in Friend for Life Cancer Support Network. Um, at Twitter, uh, we're working on Instagram, but those are, those are the main so website, social yeah, media, yeah. phone number. Phone number yeah. um, if anyone out there is listening, is interested in learning more about the organization, yes, supporting absolutely. your work, yeah. um, whether it be serving as a volunteer or 
um, supporting you monetarily through donations. Right. Um, I encourage everybody to go to your website and thank your you. social media and connect to you that way. Judy, thank you so much for your time thank today. You, I it's have been thoroughly, a thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Yes, um, have learned a lot as we went. Um, and so thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Again, my name is Gregory Nielsen from Nielsen Training and Consulting, and I hope that you will check back for our ne next episode soon. Thank you.